Welcome to Crime and Time on the Rocks. On the Rocks and in a different nook. We are in a different nook. So I live in a house that was built in the 80s. And um, it's way in the country, like country, country. <laughs> and when they built the house, husband does not understand what they did because it's got a stone, a raised stone por or cement porch. And then it's got these three bay windows that one of which is counterlevered and the other two are built as if they're counterlevered, but they go out onto the concrete porch. Yeah. It's weird. So for some reason, the ductwork that goes to the vent that's in the bay windows and connects it to the main ducts that are in the house, they used soft ductwork instead of the metal stuff, which is the rest of the house. So um, living in the country, there's creatures in the country. I bet they like that soft <laughs> ductwork. Yes. So some sort of rodent, literally, like he showed me the ductwork, and there's a hole on one side and a hole on the other side where they just went right on through. So we got tired of paying to cool and heat the underside of our home. So, <laughs> so he is ripping out all of the floor in the bay windows to replace the ductwork with metal ductwork that they cannot get through. Yes. And Kitten thinks it's grand fun to just stand by the hole. He the was hole in the just floor. over there. Yeah. <laughs> Jump around. So we're in the different one, the one that's already finished. Yes, we are in the completed nook but the it's a little nook. we're sitting in the exact same chairs with the exact same setup but it feels different it's just moved over to the other side of the yeah. house. and then i want to take bets on how long you think the duct tape the duct tape will stay on my floor from where he cut the floor out and then replaced it and then just put duct tape over oh, it to seal it it's gonna stay there forever forever until these floors get completely replaced <laughs> yes anyway we are Drinking a Long Island iced tea. Oh my goodness. This is the first Long Island iced tea I've ever had. I'm really? not kidding. Yeah. Um, all right. I've had a lot. <laughs> I know you like them. <laughs> and there's the bar in, in our town that specializes in them. True. Yeah. Used to be a couple bars that specialized in them. Remember huh. the normal one? Oh yeah. I didn't know they specialized in them. Yes. That's cool. Anyway, so... Long Island iced tea, if you don't know, is um, all your clear liquor. So it's vodka, rum, gin, tequila. Got some triple sec, sweet and sour, and top that with some cola, which I'm using Mexican Coke because that's the best kind. And it scares me to death. And yeah. <laughs> so we've... Uh, it looks like iced tea, like fully looks like iced tea. It's very strong. Yeah, I taste tequila. <laughs> I think I'm going to top mine with some more Coke, maybe. I don't know, because all I can taste is tequila. I can taste the lemon. Oh. you got to use fresh lemon in it. That's the key. There are 50 cans of frosting in my refrigerator. I saw that. From child number one making her cakes for her little friends. All right, hopefully that will disguise the taste of the tequila. It's so odd that you can taste tequila out of, out of all those liquors. I do not like tequila. That has been firmly established. <laughs> okay. So, you want to go first? I'll go first. Okay. So, I am going to talk to you about the DeFeo murders. Ooh. AKA, murder. AKA the Amityville murders. <gasps> oh my goodness. I'm excited. So... People know the story about the Amityville horror, right? Like, 
popular movie, everything, everything. Well, fake. Well, allegedly, allegedly. Um, but there was a horror that happened there that truly did happen before any of this potentially fictionalized horror story happened. Right. So we're going to start with the DeFeo family. So November 13th, 1974, there is, there was a house at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, and it was the scene of a gruesome mass murder. Six members of the DeFeo family were all shot dead while they were sleeping. That's just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, according to the deeds and information compiled by the Amityville Historical Society, the property had once been farmland belonging to one of Amityville's most prominent families, the Irelands. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So... In 1924, Annie Ireland sold the property to John and Catherine Moynihan, and the house was built a year later. So the Moynihans built this five-bedroom, three-bath Dutch colonial house. Um, the house changed hands a few times after John and Catherine Moynihan died, and then the DeFeos bought the house in June of 1965. So the DeFeos... Ronnie and Louise DeFeo were married in 1951. They had their first child, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., he was born right after they were married, basically. Yeah. Um, probably seven months has happened often back then. Probably about seven <laughs> months, yeah. Uh, Ronald Jr. Um, was called Butch. And Butch had a pretty hard life as a kid. So he was the first child. Um, his father was pretty harsh, expected a lot from him. And he often got cruelly disciplined. Aww. So, also sadly kind of typical. Yeah, so it was said that, like, one minute Ronnie would be hugging his son and then the next minute would throw him across the room. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's a little harsh. A little harsh. Even for the old and harsher discipline times. Yeah, and Louise's brother, Michael, which is Butch's uncle, later said um, in an interview that he witnessed an incident when Butch was only two years old. He said, we were all sitting down in the basement watching TV, and I don't know, the boy had done something. All of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and just pushed the boy this way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. Poor baby. So if you're doing that in front of people, other what, people, yeah. what are you doing in private? Right. Is my question. That's horrifying. Yeah. So um, Butch, again, Butch had a tough childhood. He was extremely overweight as a child. Um, he remained overweight until his later teenage years because he got into using amphetamines. Oh, well, that'll take the weight off. Yeah. yeah. Um, in school, the kids made fun of him because he was overweight. They called him names like The Blob, Bucky <gasps> Beaver, and Pork Chop. Oh. Poor Butch. I know, this poor baby. So Butch, soon enough, had some siblings. Um, there was Dawn, Allison, and then Mark. And then after Mark was born, Louise decided to leave Ronnie. <laughs> so nobody really knew why. She never really said. But Ronnie wanted to get her back. So he wrote a love song for his wife. And it was called The Real Thing. And apparently it wasn't horrible because in 1963, um, Joe Williams, who was a popular jazz singer, recorded his song. Oh, wow. So. I was like thinking something cringy. It might be. I don't know. I didn't. I should have looked it up and played some of it. Yeah. Um, so um, in 1965, Big Ronnie and Louise got back together and then they had their third son, John. Aww. So 
So what is this, four or five kids now? Um, they've got, let's see, Butch, Don, Allison, Mark, and John. So five, five. kids, yeah. Which makes sense because they were a family of seven. So. Oh, yeah. Um, it also makes sense because they've already broke up and got back together and, you know. Yeah. Stable home, whatever. So after they got back together is when they moved to Amityville um, into the house. The house. And in 1970, this is kind of funny, like in the early 70s, Big Ronnie had this whole series of life-size portraits of his family commissioned. Like, I don't know why. (laughs) Doesn't seem like something you should do. But apparently the estimate of the cost was about $50,000. In 1970? In 1970. And it's said that his father-in-law most likely paid for them. That's crazy so we're talking a 10 by 14 is fine life-sized portraits that make that's what i meant by why i know that makes no sense 10 by 14 is plenty big for a family portrait and especially from the 70s who wants to commemorate those clothes i know i kind (laughs) of like some of them i look because i you know i'm a big fan of three's company and there's stuff on there that particularly janet because i think she had better taste but i'm like oh that's cute it is kind of coming back um daughter's number one style is a cross between 70s well both of them actually because of daughter number two's child number two's hair kind of a cross between 70s and 90s grunge i think and grandma and grandma oh (laughs) the sweaters (laughs) she likes her flannels and her docks with her little like tight crop top striped polyester shirts with a collar. Yeah. <laughs> it's very weird. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Where was I? Oh, so yeah, they hung these portraits all along the wall, the staircase wall. So oh, that's just weird. You couldn't not see them. No, they're the same size as you. Yeah, literally. <laughs> that's what life size means. <laughs> so Butch, um, he got, further into drugs and alcohol, um, his mom basically just faded into the background and allowed Ronnie to just be overbearing and abuse Butch. Which tells me she was probably pushed around as well. Yeah. I mean, that's a definite possibility based on, you know, signs. Yeah. So Butch began to lash out physically. He even threatened his father with a gun. And the parents' response, I think, is interesting. So... Aside from Ronnie not discontinuing his behavior towards Butch, but they started plying him with gifts and money to appease him so he wouldn't act out. Well, that is not going to work because then he's going to demand. Yeah, and I'm like, that's not really even in any sort of book I've ever seen about how to deal with behaviors. No. He was, well, I Yeah. Never mind. That was a your stupid thought. Cut that out. Cut, cut. <laughs> cut the stupid thought out. <laughs> um, so Butch ended up um, being given a job at the DeFeo family auto dealership, but he wasn't really a very hard worker. He didn't show up most of the time. He. Uh, I can't imagine an abused child with drugs and alcohol problem who's been given everything he wants in life would be a bad employee. I that know. makes no sense. So he did show up for work a lot, but he would show up in the morning and then leave before noon. And he would go to the bar and meet his friends and cry about his life and his family. <laughs> so 1974, Butch is 23 years old. November 13th, um, Butch walks into Henry's bar, which I am assuming is one of his favorites, and he yells... You gotta help me. I think my mother and father were shot. And then he fell to his knees. 
Okay. So his friend Bobby, who was at the bar, goes over to Butch, and Butch is crying hysterically, and he pleads, Bobby, you gotta help me. Somebody shot my mother and father. And Bobby says, are you sure they're not asleep? And Butch is like, no, I saw them up there. And then Bobby's like, come on, then let's go. So Butch, Do they believe him? Yes. Okay. Well, maybe like they slightly believe him, but they're concerned enough to go check. To go check. So Butch, Bobby, and four other men from the bar, they um, drive to the house. It's only like a block away. They go to check on Butch's parents. And once they get in the house, they all hurry up the stairs. And once they were up there, they realized that something bad had happened. They could, they said that they could smell the stench of death. Ew. Yeah. So they found Ronnie and Louise in their bed. Um, they were dead. And the placement specifically of Louise's wound indicated that she was not sleeping when they were killed. So she was looking at whomever did this. Potentially. Yeah, well, well, she was awake. She was awake. Yeah. And it didn't say that Ronnie, I mean, I doubt Ronnie was asleep because it's unusual at 6 p.m. in the afternoon, in the evening to be asleep. That's not a normal sleeping time. Yeah. No. So I'm assuming he also was not asleep. But they were in bed. Yeah, they were found in bed. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so then Bobby was about to pass out and some of the men took him downstairs because he couldn't deal with that. Most people don't. I, w- I don't think yeah. I would be very conscious if I had walked in to see two people laying in bed dead. Yeah. So one of the men named John stayed upstairs and he starts checking out the other bedrooms. So he goes into the first bedroom and he can tell that it was a boy's bedroom. And that's when he found um, John, the child, who's nine. He was dead on his bed. And then Mark was dead on his bed. And they both had a single bullet hole in their back. And so John, the man who discovered the boys, because there's two Johns, he left the room and he tells one of the other men to call 911. I wonder why everyone was in bed at six o'clock. I don't think they were in bed. I think they were placed in the bed. Yeah. But I mean, it would have to have been, I'm sure you'll get to this, but after they were killed, because... How can you force that? But even so, how can you? No, it was after they were killed. Okay. Because I'm trying to think how you could force someone to go in their room and lay down without the other person jetting out of there and go call the cops. You can't be in two places at once. No. Unless you have more than one person. Well, that's a thought to hold on to. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hmm. So the other children, Dawn, who was 18, and Allison, 13, they were found also dead in their beds with gunshot wounds to the back. And so um, Suffolk County police finally respond to the scene and the victims, this is a dumb sentence. I wrote, the victims (laughs) appeared to have died. (laughs) The dead people aren't dead. It's a matter of your imagination. I'm assuming I left off part of the sentence there. Oh yeah. I don't know what that was about. Anyway, so Butch DeFeo was taken into custody for his own protection because he his told, family's dead. Well, he tells the police that he knew that the killings were carried out by this mob hitman named Louis Fellini. And he said that Fellini made Butch watch the whole thing. And so the police take him into custody to keep him safe. But then... Hold on. He ran into the bar and said, I think my parents are dead. I found them up there. But now he was forced to watch the whole thing by the mob man that killed them. Not the first time he's going to switch ideas around. Okay. So 
Yeah, so then the next day, while he's in custody, he ends up confessing to the murders, and then they also found out that Fellini had an alibi proving that he was out of state, so that immediately went out of the okay. window. So Butch said that after the killings, he took a bath and changed his clothing, and he placed the um, bloodstained clothes and the Marlin rifle that he used, like, threw that stuff away, and then he went to work, like he, it says, like usual, but like he sometimes did. <laughs> um, so then he gets put on trial. Trial starts on October 14th, 1975. His defense lawyer was named William Weber, and he goes with an insanity defense. He says that DeFeo killed his whole family in self-defense because he was hearing voices that were plotting against him. Oh. And the defense psychiatrist, Dr. Daniel Schwartz, said that the insanity plea was, was supported because even though Butch used LSD and heroin, and he also had an antisocial personality disorder. And he had his head banged against the wall a couple dozen times by dad. Yeah. So the psychiatrist for the prosecution said that Butch was aware of his actions at the time of the crime and that the um, defense shouldn't apply. Hmm. So November 21st, 1975, Butch DeFeo was found guilty of six counts of second degree murder. He was sentenced to six concurrent life sentences of 25 years to life. He's still in prison. He is housed at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. Since being convicted, he's changed his story like multiple, multiple times. He's still changing his story after his conviction. Yeah. So in one interview in 1986, he claimed that his sister Dawn killed their father and then their mother killed all of the siblings and then Butch killed the mother. Because that's a totally normal reaction to yeah. watching your child be murdered by your other child. Let's like, kill the rest of them. Yeah, if I saw somebody getting killed, my first thought is, let's go kill somebody else. Yes, not the person who did the killing, but everybody else. Yeah. So then this other story is that the younger children were supposed to be away, like they were supposed to be at their grandparents' home. And then since that didn't happen, Dawn supposedly killed all the children, so there wouldn't be any witnesses. Okay. It's a great reason for murdering this eight-year-old. Yeah. But there is some interesting evidence pointing to more than one assailant. And Dawn was found to have unburned powder burns on her nightgown in a post-mortem examination. Interesting. Yeah. And if they had gone through the front of the gun, they would have been burned, I'm assuming? Yes. Interesting. So that is interesting, especially because I don't think Butch would think to be like, let's frame an, a dead accomplice. <laughs> no, he doesn't seem like he thinks that far ahead. And she was dead anyway, so what good would that do? Right. Him? And did they even really like did the lay person know about yeah there was that a, specific forensic evidence at that point i guarantee you probably not back then because hmm. we all know csi yeah changed the whole world of you know we all know now um so it's a to do for murder people yeah or a to don't <laughs> to don't <laughs> so december 1975 um george and kathy lutz and their three children moved into the house at 112 ocean avenue the murders had taken place just 13 months before, but the Lutzes said that the DeFeo killings weren't something that bothered them. Didn't they get the house for like a song? Yes. It was an extremely good buy because nobody wanted to live in the murder house. Right? Is this the one that still had all the furnishings? That I can't 
room call. Okay. I know there was some house that's a famous house where a murder had taken place and all the furniture was still there. Yeah, that I'm not sure about. Okay. But anyway, the Lutzes only lived there for 28 days. Um, the story of their time at the house was an, the inspiration for the book Amityville Horror. That was published in 1977. Some of the Lutz children claimed that they were terrorized by paranormal phenomena while living in the house. When was when were these claims of the Lutzes in relation to the murderer saying that he heard voices? Like within like a year and a half or two years. Which came first? The murder saying he heard voices? Yes. Yeah. So that... Yeah. Okay. Because that happened during the trial. And then the Amityville Horror was public. Well, they didn't move into the house till after the trial. Okay. Um, so the Lutz family claim... Oh, I said that. Um, Butch DeFeo's attorney, William Weber, who I mentioned before, he was supposedly a approached by George and Kathy Lutz with an idea for a book. And he said, quote, we created this horror story over many bottles of wine. It is a hoax. So then I thought this was inter interesting. Weber sued the Lutzes because they took their story to another publisher. And Weber demanded that he get a share of the profits. And he was eventually um, given $2,500 when he settled out of court, plus another $15,000 for the services he provided. How do you sue for profits from a hoax, from something that you were, from profits from something you were claiming was true and then was later proven to be a hoax? I mean, the book still made money. It did, but that just seems crazy to me that you can get profits from, well, I guess purporting a hoax isn't really a crime, quote no. unquote. Especially, I mean, it's just, it's a book. It's not like they were perpetrating any sort of fraud or anything. But they were selling it as a true story. So do all kinds of people. That's true. Um, that guy on Oprah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dr. Oz, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sue us, Dr. Oz. I, I like Dr. Saying. Oz. I, I think he's saying. a character. Um, in 1979, the Amityville Horror was adapted for film. It was the highest grossing independent film of all time, and it held that record until 1990. And there's all these other... What film overtook it in 1990? I don't know. I didn't oh, I Google it. Did. I'm not a movie person. <laughs> That's right. You're not. That was just a significant year in my life, so I'd be curious to see what... Because I graduated from high school, so I'd be curious to see what movie overtook it. Because I remember the Atmanville Horror movie. Yeah, I remember that too. Um, da -da -da -da. There was all these other sequels that came out that used the Amityville name, but they didn't really have any, like connection to the story right the first one was the original story that they published and then the rest were just continuations. yeah just like capitalizing on the name um daniel lutz claimed that he was possessed by a spirit when he lived in the house and the other son christopher said that he had run-ins with the paranormal and one time he saw a presence as definite as a shadow in the shape of a man that moved toward him and then dissipated and so the interesting thing is George and Kathy Lutz both took a lie detector test about the story and they passed. Wow. Oh, and today... Did they ever claim it was a hoax? No. Did, okay, so just the attorney is claiming it was a hoax. Yes. Interesting. Um, so today the Amityville house has gone some transform undergone some transformations. It doesn't look the same anymore. It doesn't have the eyeballs. No, they changed the windows. And then they changed the address from 112 Ocean Drive to 108 Ocean Drive so that people, it would discourage people from finding the house when they were driving by. Yeah. 
So I looked at House and History, Amityville Murders, and all that's interesting. Ugh, I remember from the movie The Flies, the scene with the flies, because I hate bugs. Yeah. And so that traumatized me. I really liked the, um, the there's like a, it's not a documentary, but it's with um, the Warrens, like George and... Oh, yeah. They went through it. Because they were involved in the house. Mm-hmm. And I know they've been, like, there's claims that they perpetrate hoaxes as well, but I think it's interesting. I like it, so. That was very cool. All right. I'm going to tell us about another, a story a little older, but similar themes. Interesting. Yes. So Eastern Long Island was once inhabited by the Indians prior to 1639. It took a while to settle that area, Um, quote unquote settle. It had not been visited by settlers before, but there was a Dutch explorer named Adrian Block, and he was the first European to sail along the Long Island Sound, and he made a very inaccurate map, which the site that I found pointed out that it was a very inaccurate map, and I thought, it was the 15th century, give a dude a break. I know. You know he's I, doing the best he can. If I were to draw a map today <laughs> with all the like conveniences that I could afford, it would be probably more inaccurate than his. <laughs> yes, exactly. I imagine. <clears throat> so they eventually settled this area. Some settlers moved eastward to found what eventually became the East Hampton in 1648. And while they were there, they encountered another settler who had come eastern eastward earlier named Lyle Gart, Lion Gardner. And he was building a fort on the nearby island that he had purchased from the Native Americans. He was a very powerful figure. Um, and they as you do, said, will you be the leader of our group of aldermen governing our town? And he said, sure. That's crazy. (laughs) Yes, but he continued to build his fort and his plantation on his island. It was originally called the Island of White. It was later changed to Gardner's Island. Um, He also built a big stone mansion, which is still standing on Main Street in East Hampton. So... What is today, the town of East Hampton was originally a little quaint village. It was a farming and a fishing village and the little Puritans just kind of went about their day farming and fishing and, you know, pointing out witches and all the things you do when you're a Puritan. There's a witch. There's a witch. (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) Main Street at the time consisted of two parallel dirt roads that were about 50 yards apart from one another and about a mile long with the row houses on the north side and row houses on the west side. And then they they were facing each other and they had a cute little grass island down the center where people would just come out and enjoy the day was it a long grass island it was probably a long grass island (laughs) i remember when i grew up the town that i grew up in the town that you live in now there's two streets that have or they had at the time that i was growing up parking in the center of the street still do one is diagonal parking and one is parallel parking and i my girlfriend and i went to high school in another town where my grandma lived on the coast just to see what it was like to go to a different school and this this one girl said, oh, I've been to that town. They have weird parking in the middle of the street. And I was like, I'm 16 years old. And I was like, that's not a normal thing to do. People, other towns don't have parking in the middle of the street. It is kind of odd because like, you know, the um, one of the streets that has that parking is the where the post office is. Yeah. And so typically when I park on in that weird parking, it's to run into the post office. And I'm like... This is different because you can park. From to me, it was either, totally normal. Yeah, you can park from either direction. You just pull in like parallel or, you know, whatever. But it's right in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. It's cool. I, I didn't realize that that was not normal. I, I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. So it reminded me of that. So Puritan society was 
at the time, obviously, being Puritans, predicated on, um, oh, I forgot, back up. The government of most Puritan society was <laughs> the, theological. Take I can two. say this word. I can say this word. I can, I can, I can. I think I can. A theocracy. That's it. Which is, there was no real separation between church and state. Um, crimes against God were, in fact, crimes against the government. And these offenders were usually punished incredibly harshly, beaten, tormented, um, humiliated, imprisoned, often to the point of death. Ouch. Yes. That's harsh. Yes. So this, as given that it is a theocracy, it is predicated on religious fanaticism, another word I can't say, um, and it was extremely superstitious. People were very rigid and small-minded. It was just, you follow this little path or you don't. Um, they were, the societies were entirely patriarchal. Oh my God, why can't I talk today? And you haven't even had your long island I have yet. not. I've had like three steps of it. I think because school is out, my brain said, peace out. <laughs> um, patriarchal, right? No, patriarch, patriarch. Daddies were in charge. Of the patriarchy. (laughs) Daddies were in charge. So the men exerted complete control and the women were in completely in control of their husbands and sons once their husbands had died. Um, And this same society was also heavily governed by gossip and superstition and litigiousness and social discord, which just reminded me, you know, if you're... Not that I'm saying that they were unhappy, but it couldn't have been a very pleasant way of life. Like, I don't think there was a lot of parties and fun. It doesn't sound like there was any fun. No. And when you're unhappy, you tend to be crabby and and look for, you know, let's gossip about the neighbor and let's be mad at the neighbor and let's sue the neighbor, you know, that type of thing. That's true. So in February of 1657, there was a 16-year-old woman named Elizabeth Gardner. Okay, same family yes Howell and she married a very she was the daughter of Lion Gardner Um, she'd recently given birth to her first child and she started to feel fall ill so her new husband Arthur Howell was out and his friend Sam Parsons came by and she let him know that my husband's not home but you're welcome to come in anyway and then while he was visiting she said that she was feeling ill so he didn't stay very long he left um Soon her husband came home and he brought another friend, William Russell. So there's all kinds of visiting going on in this That's town. That's just strange. Yes. But I guess there's no TV. The internet was out, so they had nothing else to do. So let's go visit the neighbors. I know, I but it's just kind of... They had a lot of work to do. Yeah. I wouldn't think there'd be a lot of time for visiting. <laughs> the supermarket was out of bread, so they had to make their own. I hope people realize I'm being incredibly sarcastic because this was 1657. I hope so too. <laughs> You know, I teach seventh grade. Nothing surprises me. <laughs> the things that I get, like people call, texting me yesterday. Can What can I do to raise my grade? Um, go back to September. <laughs> Start over. Get in a time machine. <laughs> so anyway, he's there with his friend Sam Parsons. And, and wife says, I just don't feel well. And he says, well, why don't you go to bed? And she says, no, I don't want to. So she's really starting to complain now. She's getting chills and Fever, she's feeling feverish and she's starting to get delirious and she finally tells her husband that she is afraid of losing her senses then she starts to scream so now 
like the neighborhood is at her house and everybody is tending to is she sweet a witch? little Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, right? That's one of the three names that was used at the time. Um, so she suddenly starts shrinking, a witch, a witch. Now you are come to torture me because I spoke three words against you. And at the time, one of the telltale signs that you were being possessed by a witch is if you had dreams about a witch possessing you. Oh, okay. So I thought she was like preemptively trying to be like, look, I'm not a witch because I see one over there. No, I don't know. But she, she is possessed. I'm using air quotes here by a witch. So her husband is completely petrified by this point. So he tells his buddy Russell that he really hoped to God that she wasn't bewitched. Um, and he and another neighbor, Parsons, was sent to go get Elizabeth's father. So she said, go get my father, but don't let my mother know. <laughs> <laughs> so she finally agrees to go to bed and Parsons runs off to go get Lyle Gardner and... <clears throat> Lion Gardner and Lion, who was at home ministering to his wife because she was also ill, is more concerned about his daughter and his new grandbaby. So he leaves his wife and he goes to his daughter's house. So he stays with his daughter all night long. She's now running a fever and she's completely delirious. She's claiming that there is a black thing hovering at the foot of her bed and she's just swatting and um, flailing about trying to get this black thing out of her room. The next morning, Lion goes home to his house to check on Mary, and he and a neighbor manage to get Mary up out of bed and take her to visit with her daughter. So when mom gets there, Elizabeth tells mom that she's bewitched, and her mother says, oh no, dear, you're just dreaming. Just calm down. And Elizabeth says, no, 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 I'm, I'm bewitched. I see in the corner, Goody Garlic is at the corner of the black thing and the other corner of the foot of the bed. And her mother said, don't tell anybody else. Don't tell my, your, hus your husband or your, my, your father because, you know, this doesn't sound normal. Just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you don't want people to know. <laughs> yes. But dad finds out and he says, describe the thing that you see at the foot of the bed. And she starts to scream, a black thing is at the bed's feet. She's flailing about at this invisible thing. And she says that it is the double-tongued woman, Elizabeth Garlic, who lived down the street. But Garlic was not there, and no one else could see her. So um, she says, and this is a direct quote using the language of the time, an ugly black thing, with an E, at ye feet, with another E, of ye bed, with two Ds. <laughs> So the next day, word has gotten out by this point, and other women come to see Elizabeth, and she starts complaining of being pricked by pins by Goody Garlic. And she says, she keeps calling her the double-tongued woman. Ah, Garlic, you jeered me when I came to your house to call my husband home. You laughed and jeered me. I went, and I went crying away. Oh, you are a pretty one. Send Garlic and his wife. I would tear her to pieces and leave birds to pick her bones. Ew. Right? So <laughs> this goes on and on and on. And the women are trying to cure her with oil and sugar. And they're trying, they give her cough syrup and they're giving her all these things to try and, you know, um, cure her from her bewitchment. Did she try a Long Island iced tea? I don't think she did. I think they were out of tequila. 
That's a bummer. I know. You can't make a Long Island iced tea without tequila. Um, so while they're doing this, it is said that a metal pin fell out of her mouth. Oh. Yes. Um, Elizabeth continued to write through the next day. Um, she's, at one point it is said, it was testified to, that the other women in the room heard sounds coming from near the bed, but they searched and they were not able to find a cause. So she cries out, oh mother, I am bewitched. And then she died. Um, <laughs> but she had already said that her tormentor was Elizabeth Garlic, who was a 50-year-old married woman who had kind of a reputation for being cantankerous and ornery. She was, she was 50 years old and she was a Puritan. And I think if you'd live 50 years in that, and she was not a wealthy woman, so she had to work hard. And her last name was Garlic. And her last name was Garlic. That's so unfortunate. <laughs> yes. So she was just nasty. She was not, you know, there's, but of course, after this, there's just all these people coming out and accusing her of things. There was a, there still is a catalog of accusations made to, for, to, about her tour at the time. She supposedly cast evil eyes and sent animal familiars out to do her bidding. Um, a woman named Goody Davis, who will also figure prominently, accused Garlic of, of witchcraft. Garlic said, she said that Garlic killed her infant with the evil eye. Supposedly, Garlic went to her house to visit her with the new baby, as you do, and picked the baby up, said what, how beautiful the baby was, then put the baby down, and then the baby died. Oh. So it's totally her fault. That's so creepy, though. Yeah, it is kind of creepy. But it was 1650. Like, I know. babies died. Babies died all the time. And then, but I think it's only creepy knowing what her she's suspected of now. Right. Davis and Garlic were acquainted. They had both worked at the Lion Estate. This whole story is very incestuous. Like, everybody knows everybody, and everybody's somehow connected to everybody. So Lion and Gar or pardon me, Davis and Garlic had worked together at the Lion Estate and Davis's husband was kind of a ne'er-do-well. So they they both worked together before they moved to East Hampton. So Garlic was also blamed for other illnesses and disappearances and injuries and death to livestock in the town. Um, according to some Long Island historians, Carrie Ann Flanagan Broski, who I want her name, and Loretta Orion, Garlic was of French ethnicity and was considered to be a strong-willed woman and a troublemaker. She was a French Huguenot, which she, her ancestry was a French, was French Huguenot and all the whole, you know, um, Reformation and all of that religious turmoil in Europe, I'm sure spilled over to some of this animosity towards this person. She was said to have publicly snubbed Elizabeth Howell shortly after her marriage, and Davis seemed to be the one who was spreading most of these rumors. And witchcraft had gone completely, as you would say, viral throughout Europe and the new, the new world at the time. Tens of thousands of supposed witches were executed. Mostly it was women who were single and widows and other people kind of on the margins of society, but often they would kind of finger the poor, the, the not as wealthy, which Elizabeth was. She was married, but, or pardon me, um, Goody Garlic. What is her first name? Wasn't it Elizabeth also? It may have been. There's like three names at the time. Yep, Elizabeth Garlic. She was poor. She was not married, or she was not single, but she was poor. Um, 80,000 people, were women, were suspected of being witches in Europe between 1500 and 1660. 
um, and the highest execution rate was in Germany, but it did spill over to the New World. The colonials had a propensity for pointing out witches. Um, there was a book by Matthew Hopkins that was published. He was reported to be an English witch finder. And between 1644 and 1647, that book was pointed to during the trials of hanging of more than 100, more people than in the last 100 years. Oh, So wow. they're just, yeah, they're using this book to say, see, they're a witch. That's so, I don't know. I don't know yeah. how to express that. This is the book where they had the different tests to test if it was, if you were a witch, mm-hmm. like the one where they put you in the water and if you float, you're a witch. And so they kill you. And if you fall drown, to your death and drown, you're not a witch. You're not a witch, but you're dead anyway. Exactly. Yes. So, um. In the mid-1600s, bias towards women continued to flourish, mostly among the Puritans. And so back to our story. Joshua Garlick, which is Goody Garlick's husband, had worked at the Lion Estate with Davis's husband. And Joshua Garlick was a very good employee. He was trusted and given all kinds of extra special treatment. At one time, he was given a very large sum of money to go into town and make a purchase. And so they kind of, it was later speculated that potentially Garlic was jealous that, or Davis was jealous that Garlic's husband was giving this responsibility. Her husband wasn't. Yeah. So that's kind of the petty things that people use to finger each other as witches. Oh, it's totally like that because just knowing what I know, like I have a, I have a family member who's married into, um, well, former military now, but he was an Mm -hmm. officer in the military. And it just reminds me of how the wives were. Um, she like, that makes sense. She's very down to earth and very, you know, like normal and stuff. And she just did not like being with these other like officers wives because it was like that. Yeah. I often think why in the world would a military person choose to live off base when they can live on base for so much cheaper. But then you, you think about it's a neighborhood of high school. Yeah. And who would want to live in that if they, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in the military, but I have heard that it is a neighborhood of high school. It's also, so on TikTok, there's this whole series of people showing these quirks of their um, base housing. Mm-hmm. And like, so there's all these ones where to open, so like to open the oven or to open this drawer, you have to open the oven, pull the drawer out. <laughs> and then, but if you want to open this other drawer, you have to do three things. Like <laughs> that's just poor planning. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so to try Ms. Garlic, they decide that they need to form a committee. So they form a board of inquiry, which was composed of, of course, men. So three men, they put her in jail and they listen to testimony um, from different members of the community. There was 11 people that testified. The only person that testified for her at this point nobody no strike that okay she did not speak in her defense 11 people testified against her elizabeth gardner howell's mother swore that she was with her daughter when she saw the visions goodwife simmons swore that she was there too and sickly elizabeth had told her that garlic had pricked her with pins because you always listen to the woman delirious with fever and others testified to their suspicions of goody garlic um and finally, the magistrate said that, well, we need to, that Elizabeth's death was <clears throat> the product of witchcraft and Goody Garlic was responsible. 
So they also connected Goody Garlic with the death of four other persons, an unidentified man, a black child, and two infants. Goody Simmons swore, swore that she had fits because of Goody Garlic, and all of these things came out after this accusation. Well, of course they came out after. Right. They also ruled that Garlic had caused an ox to break his leg. And the only person that defended Goody Garlic was her husband. So this is interesting, though. So just before they pronounced the sentence, they found her guilty and they're about ready to sentence her. Lion Gardner, who was the, the prominent man, Garlic's husband's employer, and the, the father, father of the dead girl, yeah. says, um, whoa, you know what? I don't think that we should kill this woman i think we need to get a higher opinion i think we need to take this we're just a tiny little village and you are three dudes let's take this to a higher court well he also didn't want to lose his best employee probably <laughs> so the east hampton magistrates um, collected their testimony and they referred their case to a higher court at the time they were governed by the connecticut colony they were east hampton was later introduced into the New York colony, but at the time they were part of the Connecticut colony. And what's interesting is their little island, uh, Mr. Lyon's little island, or Mr. Gardner. Yeah, Gardner's little island was a colony all by itself. It's got its own charter. Oh. So he's all alone. But anyway, so they're, they're in Connecticut, and they um, take this to this higher court. And the new, there was a new sheriff in this higher court, a new person who was in charge, and that was John Winthrop Jr. And he was the son of the co-founder of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was, um, he didn't call himself this because they didn't have the term, but he was basically a scientist. He was very skeptical of witchcraft. Everybody believed in witchcraft at the time, but he was very skeptical. He needed a lot of proof to say that that was the cause of things. Um, he was looking, he did experiments. He wanted to find out the cause of things. So um, he spent his life, quote, sinking mastery over the hidden forces at work of the cosmos, says Woodward, who is a historian of the time, of the area. So Winthrop was very dubious that your average farmer's wife was smart enough <laughs> <laughs> or had the training and experience to pull off this level of alchemy and witchcraft and bad stuff he's like but if she's i've a, studied this i could probably do it but if you she haven't. was an actual witch she would be she would be yes but so that's his one of his things so he saw when he saw witchcraft cases as an incidence of community pathology the pattern is clear in the cases in which he's involved so he's this woodward the historian is saying he's looked at the cases that this man has presided over and he's saying he really was a skeptic and he really believed that all of these different things had to be, boxes had to be checked in order for it to be a witch. He consulted with Gardner. He looked at the different evidence against her and he originally found, he found that she was innocent of the crime. He felt there was not enough evidence to convict her. It was actually a jury trial, so he convinced 12 men that this person could not have done this. Um, she was eventually freed. She lived to be 100 years old. The records say that the sheriff said, it is desired and expected by this court that you should carry on neighborly and peaceably without just defense to Joss, period, Garlic and his wife. And they should be just, and they, and that they should do the like to you. So he's basically saying, go home and be friends 
Don't be rude and quit being mean to one another. And act like grown-ups. Act like grown-ups. They did have to pay a very substantial fine, so she was found not guilty. She didn't have to go to jail or die, but she still had to pay a fine. Um, and they moved back to their little town, and life went on. Their son was eventually made the miller of the town, which is a very prominent position. So they, I guess, forgave and forget, forgot. Um, shortly after the trial, Elizabeth's husband, Good, Goody Garlic's husband, sued Goody Davis for defamation. But before that trial could be concluded, Davis died. Um, and what's interesting is this was the first major accusation of witchcraft from East Hampton, and it was kind of squashed by this sheriff, and it was the last accusation of witchcraft in the East last Hampton. Witch, the last Long Island witch trial. The last Long Island witch trial. And and there's speculation. So the, the thing, one of the sources that I read said, perhaps it's no surprise that today East Hampton is known for its nightclubs, beaches, and celebrity sightings, while the, the name Salem, Massachusetts, where 19 people were hung in 1693. Impressed to death. Yes, will be forever associated with horrors and the, with the witch hunt unleashed. So there was a Long Island witch hunt. It just turned out a whole lot better. Yeah, it just, they didn't find her guilty so i'm trying to scroll back to all of my sources here and of course that one is so i use smithsonian magazine um long island press dan's papers the new york almanac two articles from the new york almanac one in 2018 one in 2019 and the sag harbor express dan's articles dan's articles he's an authority man dan knows what he's talking about dan's the man we don't know what we're talking about we don't especially not after a long island iced tea which you still haven't drank i have not i've drank some of it because i've replenished it twice with coca that's true it's pretty much just a coke now (laughs) yes it is but anyway while dan is an expert we are not we're not we're just drunks (laughs) as always you can contact us on facebook at crime and time otr on instagram we are crime and time otr on Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. Email is where, you'll want to, where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page Yay. if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crimeandtimeotr. And we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons. Absolutely. I'm excited. See you there. Thank you for listening.